Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. If you're joining us live today, we are back on the show together after I have to say a wonderful week. I know I wasn't there, but I saw the results of it. Um, A wonderful time where Bruce and Cole in our team talked about what you really need to do and have in place to make sure you're getting the right infinite banking policy. So great job to Bruce and our team and Cole on that. And I'm happy to be back with you today. And we're going to be diving deeper into the study of this fantastic book, which we can almost refer to as the foundation, the doctrine of infinite banking, you could call it. It could even be called the Bible of infinite banking. It's really where infinite banking all began. This is from R. Nelson Nash. And when we are looking at this book, we've been walking through each of the chapters. We're now in part six, and we are in the chapter, if you are following along in your book, this is on creating your own infinite banking system through dividend paying life insurance. We started part one, or the first portion of that chapter we covered last time in part five. It's been probably, I want to say a month at least, Bruce, since we've been back in this book. So just a quick recap, we've kind of gone through the principles of what infinite banking is all about, how infinite banking got started when Nelson realized that he had this aha moment of recognizing he had access to capital in insurance policies that he'd already funded and created and been been paying into for many years. And now he had access to this capital at much lower interest rates that really saved him from a financial upheaval in his own life. So that's where he realized the power of specially designed whole life insurance, and then created this concept called infinite banking, and made it more publicly aware to other people like you and me, who can take advantage of that. So that was really what we covered in part one, we talked about how it's an exercise in imagination, how you need to think differently in order to use infinite banking. We talked about how it's like a grocery store. And really, he talked about making sure that you're not being afraid to capitalize and start this policy where any business has huge upfront costs to begin with. That was kind of the the point of that piece. He talked about the problem really being a financing problem where you have a lot of dollars that are flowing out of your control in interest to the banking system being a primary need over the need for insurance. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. Nelson Nash did not say you don't have a need for insurance. He did not downplay the <clears throat> he did not downplay the need for insurance, but he did say the main problem is that people have a financing problem or a place to store cash problem. And then we talked about creating a bank like the ones you already know about, really understanding the banking function and how you need to have a place to store capital, to make loans and be profitable. And that's the same thing that's happening inside your infinite banking policy. And now we're continuing on with huge concepts in this next section where we've talked about economic value added and a whole bunch of components of really understanding how your financial life works and how you can use the banking component in your own life. So Bruce, before we dive in today, let's just hear from you. What if maybe somebody is jumping in and this is the very first episode they've ever 
heard of the infinite banking concept and maybe the first time they've ever heard from us. Let's just um, let them know why this is so important for us to talk about. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Nelson realized through his observations that a person's, you already mentioned this, a person's need for financing is greater than their need for insurance. And he didn't, like you said, he didn't mean that you didn't need insurance. He said it was greater. And a couple of examples that he gave is you, you hear a lot of people say, and I still hear it today, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to be insurance poor. I don't want to be paying so much into a insurance policy that I, I'm worth more dead than alive. And I tell people all the time, well, that's absolutely impossible because the actuaries will not allow that to happen. And he says, you know, he gives examples like, um, you know, a person says, I, you know, I, I have to pay all this premium. And I would say, no, you don't have to pay all this premium. You get to pay all this premium. It's, it's a good thing. And, you know, they might pay $10,000 a year, a premium. And they're, they're thinking, oh man, I, I'm insurance poor. I, I can't pay this. And yet if they look at how much they're paying interest on their home, it's well over $10,000 a year. And yet the premium is actually an ever increasing pool of money. And the interest that you're paying on your home is actually just money that is leaving your net worth. And so Nelson said, you know, it's kind of weird that people are willing to have money up to 35% of their, their income go out for financing. And yet they do not see that as a problem, but having 35% of their income going to premium, which is an ever increasing supply of money, they see that as a problem. Mm-hmm. Now that that comes down from many, um, many, many, I think money mindsets. The number the first money mindset that I I in my career that I think people have is that you when you're doing insurance policy, you're facing your own your own mortality. And people have a hard time facing their own mortality. I mentioned this on the phone or the the podcast before. You know, we all know we're going to die, but we don't really believe it. And that that as a biology um, instructor, that is what I believe an evolutionary um, thing that has happened to us so that we don't fixate so much on dying that we don't live a productive life. Um, So that is something that, I think money mindset wise, people have a hard time getting over. So if they realize that they're, but if they realize that their need for financing is greater than their need for death benefit, and that's a secondary thing, then you should be more excited about getting an ever increasing pool of money so you can take the financing into your own hands and stop having that 35% volume of money flowing out of your, your control. And then the final thing of persons coming in, yeah, okay, that sounds great and everything, but why don't I just pay cash for this? And we've already established that you you finance everything, whether you pay for cash or or you actually go to a financing company because you're either giving up interest or you're paying interest. Now, in the last twelve years, we're doing this in the spring of two thousand twenty three. The last 12 years, interest um, financing costs have been very, very low on a percentage mm-hmm. basis. So a lot of people have dismissed that. 
But now as, as interest rates are coming back to what I would call more normal rates, lack of manipulation, then there is a significant cost to capital as you're borrowing. Uh, right now, home loans are well over 6%. So there's a significant cost to that borrowing. So Nelson was trying to help people understand that one, stay first, having an increasing um, pool of capital is always a good thing. And then two, have you understand that becoming your own bank is, is bringing that banking function into your own life is not, not only going to help you with your recapturing financing costs, but it's also going to help you bring control into your life. You know, Bruce, you said something, you said a lot of really awesome things. I want to come back to the point that you mentioned about we're all going to die. We don't necessarily believe it. I think there's that tension, this balancing piece. I mean, if we all walked around like, you know, we're going to live forever, we might take more risks and we might not be cautious and we might um, live in a way that isn't congruent with our character. But if we also thought I'm going to die tomorrow, either that's going to be fear inducing and we're all going to walk around with a really heavy head and and slumped over shoulders and being like, well, what's the point of anything in life? Or we're going to live it to the fullest. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can address that, right? If you if you hold the best perspective of both, that you want this long life and you also don't know how long it's going to last. If you really are in that perspective, you can think about if I did live for the next just say 300 years, next really long time, past any human lifespan, what would be possible for me to create in the world? What impacts could I then have on others? And if I didn't know how long I had, I really want to make every moment count. And I think that's really the the crux of having a good perspective of, of our mortality and knowing that we're not going to last forever, but we have the capability of creating lasting impacts forever. And that's one of the things I love about infinite banking and about life insurance in general is that it's not really just about me. It's really about what I can do during my lifetime in order to create a foundation so that people after me can also have this starting point that's beyond where I started. And if we all thought that way, we would probably be able to embrace our mortality in a more healthy fashion. So I'm going to jump into we're going to jump into the topic here today. And what I want to ask <clears throat> if you are listening live or if you're listening after the fact and you're at this point in the podcast, I would like to hear a couple of things. If you could drop in a comment, have you seen the rest, the, the five earlier portions of our series on becoming your own banker? So that's question one. Have you seen the first five pieces, sections, chapters, um, episodes, there we go, of the Becoming Your Own Banker series on the Money Advantage podcast? That's question one, yes or no. And then I would also love to know, have you read Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker? So those are clearly both yes, no questions. If you just put yes or no, we're not going to know which question you're answering. But yes, I've read Nelson Nash's book. No, I haven't read Nelson Nash's book. I would love to know where you are at in this journey of understanding and discovering whole life insurance for yourself. So 
Um, thank you, Fritz, for jumping in on YouTube. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Thank you for commenting and for listening live and for all the rest of you who are as well. So let's jump into the, the reason or the purpose of this conversation today. We're talking about dividends. What is the power of dividends in a life insurance policy? And probably if you're in our tribe and you've been listening for a while, you say dividends. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. But just for a little bit of groundwork, in case you are not familiar with what a dividend is in a whole life insurance policy, I'm just going to give the super fundamental bare bones description. Whole life insurance is insurance that you have for your whole life. And there's, I'm again, oversimplifying a little bit, Yes, it lasts to age 121. If you get a policy now, that means it endows at that point. It pays out to you if you haven't died already. So it is going to last at least till the end of your life. So what that means is that you not only have a death benefit inside life and a whole life policy, you also have cash value. It's like equity in your home. That cash value is growing with two things, guaranteed interest and two non-guaranteed dividends. Now, you might say, why would I want something that's not guaranteed? And why are you making a deal about something that's not guaranteed? I mean, that's a fair question, right? Well, dividends for companies that have been around for a long time that we work with that have stable financials are in a position where they've paid dividends every single year, even through the worst of economic times. So they can't say, I'm guaranteeing that you'll get a dividend. However, if we look historically at their performance, the track record says, they're going to pay dividends. So it's not a guarantee, but it's highly likely that they'll pay dividends. Now, when you have a policy growing with interest and dividends, you have multiple things that the dividend can do. A, it's adding to the growth of your cash value. B, if you if you structure the, prop, the policies in a certain way, you can have those dividends purchase more paid up insurance, which then increases your death benefit, increases your growth, has a compounding effect, and then you're growing dividends on your dividends, where you're growing also interest on your interest. This is very powerful because it's a way to not only have life insurance, you're also getting this cash storage where you're storing capital and it's safe, it's not going to drop in value, it's liquid because you can access it. We've covered a lot of these components. I'm just glossing over them now. It's liquid because you can access it through policy loans as much up to the cash value you have inside your policy. And it's growing. It's growing at a better rate comparatively to other similar components or similar tools of places to store cash. So Bruce, I don't know if we need any more foundation. I don't want to belabor that point. I'm sure most of our audience is already extremely familiar with that. Um, but let's talk about where Nelson Nash jumps into this portion of the chapter. If you're following along, we're on page 22. Uh, I think this is the fifth edition of Nelson Nash's book. And so a few paragraphs down, and we're jumping in here where he's talking about over-engineering a policy. Um, Bruce, I'm just going to give the lead-in that he talks about with the gaslight on your tank. And then do you want to um, pick up how policies are over-engineered from that point? Go ahead. Okay. So he talks about life insurance policies being over-engineered. And you might say, what does that mean and why? And he relates it to the gaslight on your tank, your gas, your dashboard in the car that tells you your tank is empty. Now, when we first are brand new drivers and we're 16 years old and we're you know, not paying attention to how much gas is in the tank and we're just trying to figure out driving, all of a sudden that light comes on and we say, oh my goodness, I need to get to a gas station in the next 10 seconds or I'm going to be dead on the side of the road. 
that's not necessarily true because the car is over-engineered to have more space in the tank, more gas left when that light comes on. It's a warning light. It's telling you, hey, if you haven't been paying attention to me all this time, the gas gauge has been dropping and you probably haven't noticed, but now that this light is on, you really, really do need to pay attention. However, it's not urgent. You do not have to screech to a halt, turn around and get back to the gas station you just passed three minutes ago on the freeway. Instead, really most cars, when you do research, have about 30 to 50 more miles left to go in the tank. Some cars even up to a hundred miles when that light comes on. They over-engineered the car to tell you the, the tank is empty. It's not fully empty because the car manufacturer wants you to be in a safe position and wants you to make sure that you're going to take care of that problem, but they're not going to tell you right at the last minute. So Bruce, how does that relate to how life insurance policies are over-engineered? Well, actuaries are interesting people. They're highly intelligent people and they're highly conservative people. And so when a dividend is declared be, uh, for after a whole lot of things that the actuary has actually done. And what the actuary is, has done is looked at the um, mortality of tens of thousands of people in age groups, gender, and have certain ha habits. And they then, they, did, they then come up with a rate at each age and they determine what that rate will be and then they, as Nelson says, they put a little fudge factor in there. They put a little extra just in case kind of situation in there. And that just in case is what Nelson talked to is about over engineering. Or as you said, the, the light on your car coming on says you're at empty, but you're really not. They're just over engineering it. And so that over engineering is additional profit to the company. And that additional profit is a just in case something would happen. What would the just in case be? Well, let's go back to how dividends are actually um, totally figured out. So you have to have a rate first, and that's the expense of just the cost of the insurance. But that's the highest expense. Um, but that is not, uh, I'm sorry, that's the cost of the insurance in case there's a death benefit. The death benefit is the highest expense to the company, but that's not the only expense. You have home office expenses. You have real estate to house home office. You have commissions paid to people to present the whole life insurance contract. And so those, all those expenses are on the book, just like any other business, just like um, a, a service station that you were talking about, gas station, just like a um, a mobile phone business, just like any mom and pop restaurant, those are expenses. And then they have income coming in. What is the income? Well, the income is from portfolio, what they invest things in. So they're collecting all the premium and they get a portfolio return. What other income do they have besides portfolio income? They actually have income from the interest that they charge on the loans. So that is also calculated in that. At the end of the year, the actuaries uh, have designed this pro, um, have designed this, the CFO of the company, along with the board of directors, look at all of this, and they've done a great job of determining profit over hundreds of years. And so all the companies we, as you mentioned, have always declared a dividend over hundreds of years.
So they they come about and they say we have a profit of X, which just I think Nelson uses a dollar twenty-five or dollar twenty, something like that. And he says if they're smart and actuaries and CFOs are smart, they're going to take a little bit of that profit and put it into reserves. So just in case they mess up in the future, or just in case there's a catastrophic event that happens in the future. Then they're going to take the remaining profit and they're going to distribute it to the policyholders because they're owners of the company. There's no stockholders that they're beholden to. They're just the policyholders get the dividend. And those dividends can be, as you already mentioned, they can be just sent to you. They can be uh, held at the comp- a company and what's called acute, they can accumulate at the company in an interest bearing account. Mm-hmm. Just like, just like a bank, or they can buy paid-up additions. We believe that the most efficient way to do it is to buy more paid-up additions, because then you're going to get actually, once again, that compounding effect, because you're going to be making interest and dividends on the paid-up additions as you keep um, this giant flywheel going further and mm-hmm. further. Another real important point, Rachel, is that once a dividend is declared, it's guaranteed. So most people, when they are afraid about, well, what about these dividends? They're thinking about stock dividends and a stock dividends declared. A lot of times people do the same thing. They say, we're just going to reinvest the dividend into buying more stock. Well, as soon as you do that, then that Stock is no longer guaranteed to stay at that price, so your dividend's no longer guaranteed. Mm-hmm. But in, in life insurance policies, uh, the contract says once it's declared, it is guaranteed. So that and is a let me just, really important point for people. Let me add to that. So after the so, um, this is a point Nelson talks about in a little bit, where on the non guaranteed side of the illustration, you're going to see non-declared or sorry, non-guaranteed dividends listed out every single year. You're going to see them listed at today's dividend rate. We know that an illustration is not going to perform exactly, or your contract, once you put it in place, is not going to perform exactly like the illustration because the illustration is using today's figures to map out what the dividend is going to be in the future, where we know that dividends rise and fall based on primarily the bond market. And when we see bond rates and we see interest rates rising, then what that does is typically dividend rates rise within the company. It's not a guarantee again, and usually there's some lag time, but dividends can be can change from what the initial illustration mentions. However, what Bruce is talking about is once that dividend is declared, they're declared each year, and then it's applied to your policy, it now becomes, that portion becomes part of your guaranteed cash value over on the the left-hand side of your illustration for your actual performance, your actual uh, experience in the policy or your in-force illustration, not your projected illustration that you get before you purchase. So what Bruce is saying is that it the dividend is paid at whatever that dividend rate is for that year and, and it's figured based on the percentage that you're going to get for your policy and then it becomes applied over on the left-hand side. It moves that that paid amount, paid out amount moves from the right-hand non-guaranteed side over to the left-hand guaranteed side of the contract, rising what your guaranteed amount is 
above what the guarantee says on your illustration. And then not that's where it sets a new floor and your cash value is not allowed. It's not able to drop beneath that in the future. So it absolutely is applied to the guarantees, becomes guaranteed, becomes solid ground beneath your feet. And the next year's dividend is then again, not guaranteed, but highly anticipated. Yes. And um, some people are are worried about the fact that currently under current tax law, dividends are not taxable. Mm-hmm. And they're considered to return a premium. And everybody that is against co-life are saying all they're doing is giving your money back. And Bruce, can I say something before we go there? Just because I think it might help pave the way for somebody who is maybe a little less familiar. So this over-engineering piece is Nelson Nelson mentions, I'm going to read about two sentences that he has kind of plugged in between these two concepts where we're talking about what a dividend is and how this policy is over-engineered and then where Bruce is going with it being a return of premium. So Nelson says, furthermore, the policy is engineered to become more efficient every year, no matter what happens. That is, if the owner does what is called for in paying premium, loan repayments plus interest thereon that are at least equal to or better than the general investment portfolio of the company. So he's saying, if you fulfill your end of the contract, then you're going to see the company's going to be more profitable than they're projecting on the illustration with your dividends. He says that's because the cash value is guaranteed to ultimately reach the face amount of the policy by age 100 of the insured. We didn't mention that before. So if you're familiar with life insurance, you're like, yes, yes, you're preaching to the choir. If you're not as familiar, the death benefit, especially if you structure it where your dividends then buy more paid up additions, paid up insurance, your your death benefit's going to rise and also your cash value is going to rise. Your cash value is going to rise no matter what. It's going to, they're going to meet each other at the end point of the contract. So that means your cash value is getting closer and closer to the death benefit the further on in the policy, the longer you have it. He says there is an ever increasing, ever decreasing net amount of risk for the company. And then he talks about an airplane and this whole idea of increasing inefficiency with time. Like an airplane, as they're burning fuel, the plane becomes lighter, which means it can fly more efficiently or faster, the longer it's enforced. So that's where the over-engineering comes in, where you could argue and say, well, the reason or the way they're over-engineering is if if they're charging this amount of premium, then they didn't really need quite that much premium in order to cover all their costs. And that's why they're turning a dividend back to me. And that's why it's called return of premium, which is where you're going with the tax piece. Go ahead, Bruce. Yes. Yes, and the um, in remember dividend we hear we hear dividends and a lot of people hear dividends now for stocks, but dividends actually came out of the insurance industry, and it predates the actual uh, tax code of nineteen thirteen, and nice. so when that happened, then they decided that this was just a return of premium and it would not be taxable. Now I. I've argued this before uh, because people say, see, I, they just overcharged you. Um, that overcharging is a just in case, but they're returning that to you. It's similar. I tell people like, and I always use Coca-Cola because they pay a, a nice dividend. You know, you could say the same thing about Coca-Cola is having all a profit is, is additional dividends now that they can give. Well, that means they charge you more for a can of Coke. Than they needed to charge you for, 
and then they wouldn't have any dividends. So the same thing could happen in in the uh, whole life insurance contract. Yes, they could lower that, but if they lower it, then they bring in risk, and actuaries don't want to want don't want to face that risk. And the other thing, it would lose the um, the tax free amount. And as it grows, uh, Rachel, you're absolutely uh, it's absolutely true that the cash value is always chasing the death benefit. So the more premium you put in, the more dividends that are are declared and you're growing your death benefit, growing your, your death benefit actually means you're growing your cash value because they have to meet because the cash value is the net present value of a future death benefit. So they have to meet at age 121. In Nelson's book, it's age 100 because the products that he was using at that time and the mortality tables at that time in 2000 were actually less. So they actually met at 100 at that time. But they actually go to age 121. So this is a, th- then people say, well, what if uh, Congress takes this away as far as being tax free? Well, first of all, it's a contract. It is literally a contract. An illustration isn't a contract, but but life insurance contracts are contracts. And Nelson used to say this all the time. Could Congress try to take it away? Yes. Because he was not a fan of Congress. He was not a fan of taxes. But in order to do that, they will almost have to grandfather everybody that has a contract now and not change it because tax codes are not contracts. But contractual law in our society is the backbone of our society. Uh, Nelson used to say that all the time. And there's precedents for this. When they changed how uh, the MEC limits were in the 86, they actually did not change the MEC limits for previous, previously declared contracts. So there is precedent for this. The other thing that taken consideration for dividends being still remaining tax-free is many of Congress actually own permanent life insurance in the form of whole life. I've said this on the podcast before. All you have to do is you can, it's for public record. You can go look at this. Uh, President Biden actually um, disclosed all of his financials and he owns four whole life insurance contracts. So Congress themselves actually hold this. And so why would they, I mean, they could, I guess, but more than likely, they're not going to pass a law that's going to be to the detriment of themselves. That's what I mean, they do they on a daily themselves basis. In the foot. Yeah. Right. That's what they do on a daily basis. Bruce, really quick, before you move on, that reminds me of the question that I think a lot of people ask when they finally learn about infinite banking. I think everyone has this epiphany, like why in the world are not more people doing this? Mm-hmm. Because it makes so much sense. I can store my capital, build a death benefit in the, at the same time, have cash value I can access and use. I can use this during my lifetime. I get uninterrupted compound interest. I can access this capital, pay back with non-structured loans, leave a legacy to my children. Why wouldn't more people do this? Well, there's a, a saying, and I don't remember who came up with this. You probably know. They said, um, basically, those who understand do. Do you, do you know where that, that quote no, originated no. from? No, I don't. But, you know, that's very similar to what Nelson used to always say. If you understand the problem, you'll understand what to do. Right. It's very, very similar to that. Yes. I think it's just so fascinating that, um, I mean, you're saying a lot of these 
a lot of wealthy people, a lot of people who understand how the financial system works are using cash value life insurance. Not all of them. I mean, we clearly can't say every single person who's wealthy has life insurance. You can't make that generalization. However, many people who understand how these things work are wanting to use the guarantees and the power of life insurance, which again, largely comes to the dividends that are paid inside of the life insurance policy, which is why we're having this particular conversation today. And it is it is nice to know that, and you mentioned this, the, the, the longer you have the contract, the more efficient it becomes. And the reason it becomes more efficient is just like he said, he says in the book, you know, anybody that is going to start a company is actually going to be inefficient because it takes capital to start the company at the very beginning. Now, he says it takes about seven years to turn a profit. Um, you know, I think with our buddy, Mike McCallowitz and so on and so forth, we would say it, it should take a lot sooner than that. But, you know, even three years or five years to turn a profit. It's funny how people will put capital into a business and not expect that to come back to them for three to five, seven years, but people put money into a contract and want to have all that money available in the form of a, a profit right away. Um, and I think that I think if they actually sat down and thought about it, they would they would think that was pretty silly. The other thing that we we could compare to all the time is is the securities uh, industry. And I think if people don't know in the podcast, I am a financial advisor, so. I have uh, experience in the securities, and I hear this all the time with some of my, uh, not colleagues, because my colleagues embrace this, but other people in the industry, they say, yeah, but you know, when you have a stock, it's immediately liquid. So if you want to get out of it, you can get out of it. And I first I say, well, then you're not really doing your fiduciary responsibility because when you, when you do that, it's supposed to be a, a long-term investment. And the second thing is what I've noticed over time period. Yes, it's liquid, but when do you liquidate it? So example, let's say you put $100 into a stock and it takes off and it goes to 120. You often hear a person say, oh, don't sell it now because it's going to keep going. Or you put money into a stock and it goes down to $100 and it goes down to 80. And the person says, well, don't sell it now because you want to make your money back. So if you don't sell it when it's going up and you don't sell it when it's going down, when technically is it technically it's liquid, but is it really liquid? So yeah. that do you is want that to is liquidate. Some, That's the question. Do you want to right, do you want to liquidate? Mm -hmm. And so all of those things, when you rethink your thinking, and that is part of Nelson's tenants of IBC, is you have to rethink your thinking about how you do your your cash money, your cash management management system with your money. And the final thing, uh, and Rachel will move on, is, you know, one of the things that is also bothersome for some people is, and we just got another uh, email this morning that Lucas shared is, you know, about the safety of this. And I tell people all the time that one of the reasons they over-engineer it is to build even more safety net into the system. So that should be also very uh, comforting to people that insurance companies are taking care of your money because they have they have to by the regulators because they have long term promises by contract to make where stocks, bonds, mutual funds, 
they don't, there's no contract that says we are going to pay this out at this, at this time. So uh, that's just something to consider. You know, I think the fundamental question behind that, you know, is it really safe comes back to this idea that most people think of their money, their growing money, not their spending money, but the money that they're doing something with for the future. The automatic thought is let's invest that. What's the rate of return? What's the risk of this? Well, whenever you associate a higher rate of return, there's usually a higher risk rate associated with that, which then means not just the risk of it not having a good rate of return, it's the risk of loss and that potential loss of capital. And so often when we think about growing money, we're not also at the same time thinking about safety of money. And I like to just isolate the two purposes of money completely and say, on one side, you have a need to store cash that you can depend on. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. The reason we use a savings account and not stick all of our money in the stock market is because we need to know, well, hey, if I have an emergency tomorrow, I need to get to $1,000 or $20,000 or whatever it is for you in your financial economy. I need to get to that money. I need to know it's there, not do I have to jump through these hoops? Do I have to pay taxes on that? Is it going to take me three weeks to get it? Uh, Is it a possibility it won't arrive? I need to know that I've got that capital. So it's it's something I can depend on. That's a place to store cash. That's where I'm going to pay my employees out of. That's where I'm going to be in a position of having my regular accounts payable come out of. I'm going to be wanting to have capital I can touch and access and use that I can depend on. The other side is money that you're growing hopefully for the future. And when you think about life insurance, this comes down to what Nelson says here, that the obvious need for financing, he's talking about paying for things in your life. The obvious need for financing is much greater than the need for life insurance and protection. I mentioned this earlier, but here he says this in the book. Um, if he'd solve the need for for finance through dividend paying life insurance, he would automatically have much more life insurance and recover all the interest he's now paying to someone else. And then he says, but this almost never occurs because the mental block implanted by financial genius is that life insurance is a poor place to store money, which brings me back to the point that people think about life insurance as an investment and it's not. A safe place to store cash is different from an investment with risk. And when we say, well, how safe is it really? We're usually leaning on that investment side. Well, how safe is this investment really? Is it going to lose value? How? I mean, could I lose it all tomorrow? Is it likely to lose all of its value tomorrow? Or is it highly unlikely to lose all of its value tomorrow? But we're still talking about a gradient or a spectrum or a scale of risk level. When we're talking about life insurance, there are guarantees. There are literally guarantees. You have a guaranteed death benefit, a guaranteed amount the life insurance company will pay out to your heirs should you pass away. You have a guaranteed cash value amount, which is literally a floor, the minimum amount of equity that you are able to access in this policy at any given time. It is a place to store cash for that purpose because you can depend on that guaranteed cash value. There's also guaranteed premium, meaning if you're committing to pay $50,000 a year in policy premiums, they will not be able to come back to you and say, well, actually to fulfill the death benefit we said we were going to give you and fulfill the cash value we said we're going to give you, you actually need to pay 100000 in premium every year going forward because we messed up. They can't do that because your premium is guaranteed, meaning it cannot be raised in order to fulfill the other guarantees inside the policy. So 
all of that means we need to separate and isolate those issues. Life insurance is not a good investment because it's not an investment at all. It is not a place where we should think about risk, levels of risk, amount of risk. It's not risk. We That's why we believe and we love pure whole life insurance, not hybrid forms of life insurance. Not That's why I don't have an IUL personally. And that's why I'm not a fan of VULs and universal life because those try to merge and mesh together this weird mix of well, it's safe, but there's also this potential for higher growth, which actually means you're introducing risk to the policyholder. You're taking on more of the burden of risk. It gets really complicated and messy. But when we talk about pure whole life insurance, we're really talking about guarantees. Yes, there are guarantees. Yes, you can depend on it. Depend on it. Is it risky? Could you lose money? No, it's guaranteed. So that is why we need to separate what investments are versus safety and think about the need for financing is the need for paying things in our life, which if we solve that need and we recognize how valuable valuable of a place life insurance is to fulfill that need, everyone would automatically have as much insurance as they can get, really is what it would come down to. Yeah. And uh, Chad uh, Hewitt says he always asks myself that question, why isn't everyone doing this? I had another um, colleague of mine uh, say, answer to that question. It's kind of flippant. He says, that's because they haven't talked to me yet. Everybody hasn't talked to me yet. And I think, I think we're starting to see that as Nelson used to talk about the efficiency of a policy being a flywheel. And a lot of people don't understand what a flywheel is, um, but it, it's also on a car and it's also a grinding stone. But, you know, it's hard to get this big, heavy object to turn. But once you get it turning, it's hard to actually get it to stop. And so if more and more people understood that if they could have some patience at the beginning, that this is just a place that you should put your money just like you would put into a bank. And you're going to get a lot of the attributes of a bank, not all of them. That's why insurance companies want to make want to make sure everybody understands that this is not actually a bank, mm-hmm. okay? But you're getting the attributes, especially the borrowing um, uh, attributes of a bank. But you're using your money as collateral, and when you think about it, a real bank, you're also using your money as a collateral, or, or excuse me, the bank's using your money as collateral. So there's not much difference between the two. More and more people are are jumping onto this um, strategy. One, it's Nelson has done a really good job of putting his institute together, and it's being carried on by his son-in-law now, David Stearns. And be, through the power of social media, more and more people are uh, gravitating to this. However, I, with a word of caution, I would make sure that you're actually talking to somebody that is following the five tenets of Nelson Nash Institute. And the best way to do that is to look for a practitioner. And you can go to infinitebanking.org and look for a practitioner uh, in your area. Or obviously, you can call us because um, I am a practitioner with the Nelson Nash Institute. So I do believe more and more people are going to gravitate to this strategy. Bruce, two things on that point before we move on. Um, You mentioned the five tenets. Secondly, you mentioned the caution to make sure you're getting what's true infinite banking. If that's what you're wanting to do. Now, if you're not wanting to do infinite banking, then don't do infinite banking. But if you want infinite banking, you want the guarantees I just mentioned, you want that place to store cash, you want that growing cash value, you want dividends, 
to amplify the growth of your policy. You want to structure it in a way that you have a rising death benefit. You want to leave a legacy for future generations. Then do infinite banking because that's what infinite banking does really, really well. So um, I wanted to put a plug in for the episode you did last week. Again, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, but Bruce did an episode that covered a document that we've done that's part of our um, privatized banking secrets course last week. And it's basically a self-assessment for you to go through and find out before you buy a life insurance policy, what exactly you need to answer and if, and it will help you discover if you're buying the right policy or not. So it goes through three components, three sections, and it answers, am I getting the right policy design or the right policy? Am I working with the right insurance company? That's the insurer. And then also, am I working with the right producer or the right agent, the right financial advisor that is helping me? So right policy, right company, right advisor, or are all three of those pieces in alignment with me and what I need? It's a self-assessment for you to be able to understand that. So go back to last week's episode. For some reason, my chat is not working. Oh, maybe it is now. And um, I need to, I'll go ahead and pop the link for last week's episode into the chat and hopefully it will show up for everyone who's watching live. The other thing, Bruce, can you go through those five tenants really quick, just for somebody who might not know what you meant? Nelson Nash's five tenants. Yeah. So um, first one is to think long range. That means don't just think, well, what is my money going to do for me right now? Uh, to actually don't be afraid to capitalize. So if this is a great place for your money to lay, then you need to put as much money in there as possible. Mm-hmm. Don't, ste- don't steal the peas, which is a, a funny story in the book about basically, hey, if you're going to borrow from the insurance company, which is coll- using your money to collateralize, you need to pay it back. You need to be an honest banker, just like you'd have to pay a, um, an actual bank back. You, you need to not do business with banks. And this is an Austrian economist way of thinking. Uh, Nelson was an Austrian economist. And I think everybody right now is feeling that the central banks um, or who actually control the money supply are actually, have actually manipulated our economy. And, and we, are, we are actually having massive inflation because of it. And Nelson believed if enough people would actually stop doing business with the banks, that the banks would actually have to go back to more customer service and, our, and the Federal Reserve would actually have to have better monetary policy. And then the final one is to rethink your thinking. And not just to about this, but about everything. You need to think about everything in your life. The problem is, is people don't slow down and just think right now. And then they don't think about the way they think. And so it's That's not a lot of work just, to do that, isn't it, Bruce? <laughs> right, right. And so it's not just about rethinking the way your money works, but also the way our economy works, the way the human behavior is. You know, and he talks about Parkinson's laws, talk about the golden rule, you know, human behavior. You have to think, why are you thinking like this? What influences are upon you? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the five things that, that Nelson talked about. And, um, if you just apply those things to your daily life, even if you don't do infinite banking, I think it's really, really helpful for you to, uh, progress as a human being. Absolutely. There's so much I could say on that right now. And I'm not 
for the sake of time, I'm just going to jump to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read a section from Nelson Nash's book here. So he's gone through why and how you can create your own banking system through dividend paying life insurance. And we've walked through most of that today. At the end, then he starts talking about basically how can you understand the infinite qualities of infinite banking? That's kind of the point of this section I'm going to read. So he says, then why not expand your own potential by buying all the life insurance on yourself and that the companies will issue? And then on all the persons which you have insurable interest, you don't have insurable interest on everybody. You don't have insurance, insurable interest on the person who drove past your house this morning or your neighbor or your friend or your friend's grandmother. You don't have insurable interest. Insurable interest means that if something happened to that person, you would be financially at a detriment. Or emotionally. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was like, am I saying that the right direction? Um, So this would usually mean your children could mean your parents, your grandparents, if they're living and you are financially responsible for taking care of them or could be, or would be um, your spouse, a business partner. Those are the type of people you have insurable interest in. And then Nelson goes on to say, at present, does not all of your income go through the books of some banking institution? Don't the banks lend out the deposits of customers? All they do is capitalize the bank, capital stock, and make it a safe place for customers to deposit their money and then lend out the money left on deposit. If they don't lend money, they'll go out of business. Then he says, it'll take the average person at least 20 to 25 years to build a banking system through life insurance to accommodate all the needs for finance. But once such a system, I'm skipping over a bit, once such a system is established, it can be passed on to future generations as long as they can be taught how the system works. The point I want to make through reading that section is that you can't be thinking short-term. You really need to be thinking long-term, just as Bruce just mentioned as one of the tenets of of Nelson Nash's and how you do infinite banking. You need to be thinking long-term. You can't be afraid to capitalize. We have a policy right now that's still in the capitalization phase, meaning we haven't on that policy recovered the amount of premium we've paid in to the amount of cash value we have. So our cash value, sorry, is lower than the amount we've paid in at this point. But we know based on the way that these work, because we understand the mechanism and the mechanics of whole life insurance, that this is a long-term play. This is something we're in the current capitalization phase and we're about to come over the hurdle of that. So we're not 25 years in. I'm, I hate to say it. I wished I had started this when I was two years old. That would be amazing. Um, I didn't know at the time. My husband and I didn't come to this conclusion about life insurance. I think we started our first policy and a pretty small one um, about nine, nine or 10 years ago, I think nine right now. So I wish I'd known this sooner. I wish that I'd come to the light and understood this. But what I do know now is that as I'm building these policies, it's going to take time. And as I'm building this capital for myself to use, not only in my own lifetime, I now have this powerful tool to pass on to future generations. And by pass on, I mean the death benefit payout is always going to be more than I paid in, which means my kids are going to have more than I ever put in because of the growth inside the policy. And then if they're taught how to use it, they can use that capital that they now have because they've received this death benefit at my passing and my husband's. And they're able to say, now, how do we turn this into more of a foundation for the next generation? And so that's what Nelson Nash is talking about in terms of developing a system of policies. Bruce, anything you want to add on and 
wrap up with here today? Yeah, the only thing I would say to uh, wrap up on this is Nelson even talks about in a book. He was a life insurance agent. He wasn't a life insurance agent at the very beginning, and he actually took out, took out his first policy when he was in a, a teenager himself. And so then he worked as forestry for a while before he actually became a life insurance agent. And so when he set up his first policies, they weren't set up the way that he would like them to be set up now. And so he made some mistakes. And then the other thing that I tell people all the time is Nelson lived what he what he preached. And the way he did that is he did not get the banks out of his life until he was age 67. Okay, so he started taking out policies in his teen as teenager, and it wasn't until age sixty-seven where he got the banks out of his his life. So this is a this is a lifetime process. This is a way of life. Okay, it's not something that you try. I, I've been telling that to potential clients all the time. When I and some of them will either say, "Yeah, I think I want to try this," and I say, "No, there is no try. There's only do." For Star Wars fans, they will actually appreciate that. <laughs> I like but the, that is I like the quote, even though I'm I can't say I know enough about Star Wars to be a fan. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but this is this is a this is not a gimmick. This is not something that you just try. This is a this is simply a a, a way that you now you do your cash management system. You just change the place that you store your money. Mm-hmm. You were storing it in a bank, now you're gonna store. A majority of it, not all of it, because you need 15 minute money, I call it. But you're gonna you're gonna store a majority of your money and you're gonna make major purchases and and fund major things out of this particular pool of money. So when when you boil it boil it down to the simplest part of it, it's really the cash management management system, just a different place to store your money. Bruce. We are going to be continuing on this this series. We also have guests coming up on the um, docket, and we also have other conversations that we have also. So I can't say this is going to be next week, but the next part of the book, we're going to be digging into part two of Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And this, sorry, I keep holding it on the wrong side for my um, camera there. Um, But this digs into the human problems, understanding Parkinson's law and Willie Sutton's law and what is the golden rule? These are really a key part of rethinking your thinking. And he also talks about the arrival syndrome. And um, what's so interesting, Bruce, you mentioned earlier that we need to rethink our thinking and not just think about what we're thinking, but why are we thinking that way? I think it's so challenging because we're we normally just hear things and then we're exposed to information. We might regurgitate the information. We we're exposed to, we don't actually consider the source of the information, how true it is, how logical it is. I and mean, we don't, we're not fully ro- logical, rational beings. I would love to say that we are, but we're not. And I mean, this makes me think about how do we know that we believe the right things about the world? How do we know we believe the right things about other people, about ourselves, about how we should interact with others? And I mean, I can't say this is the foolproof way of knowing, but usually it has to do with going back to the old way that has been time tested. I'm not saying that we should never embrace new things and new technologies because obviously we've been given, God's given us a mind to think and to create and to do new things that have never been done before. And that's 
the advances of science and technology and medicine, they're all amazing for humanity. And we're continue, we're supposed to continue growing along those lines. But at the same time, there's principles. I guess maybe I should say principles. It's not just the the way of thinking. It's the principle behind the thinking. If it's age-old, time-tested, proven way of understanding the world, that is going to be more solid beneath our feet than something that's brand new, that's untested. And that's a really good component, not the only piece, but a good component of evaluating our thinking. And that's one of the reasons why I love infinite banking. I mean, it's something that's been around for a long time and probably used more historically than it's being used today, which points to the time-tested nature of this being around for a long time. All right. I know that I missed some comments. Um, Bruce, was there anything we needed to attend to? My my system's glitching. It tells me there's no live viewers right now, but I know there are. And I know yeah. that I responded to a couple and it kicked them out. So yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I have I have several, but basically we we covered all of them um, in one way or another. So I think we're good with the comments okay. today. And thanks everybody for uh, chiming in. It, it really is helpful with our content to actually target what you really want to uh, to know about. So thanks a lot for commenting. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us on this conversation today. If you are ready for next steps and you want help to address this issue in your life of infinite banking, a place to store cash, thinking about leaving a legacy, we would love to have a conversation with you. And you can do that very simply by going over to themoneyadvantage.com. And there's a button on the front of our page where you can book a conversation on our calendar. I was going to say book a calendar. That doesn't work. Book a call on our calendar and have a conversation about what you're looking for, what you want to do, and how we can help you get there better and faster. So with that being said, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.